Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, October the 28th, 2022. The news this morning is not particularly cheery for those concerned about the end of the world. The Guardian has a piece today on a UN report suggesting that the world is close now to irreversible climate breakdown. Um, the Russian war, the Russian war in Ukraine continues. Lots of threats of the use of nuclear weapons that would perhaps again destroy the world ultimately. Uh, Elon Musk, who's in the news for other reasons this morning, is predicting the end of mankind, that an apocalypse is close because of the dangers of artificial intelligence, of smart machines that will acquire their own souls and presumably enslave us. He's in the business of perhaps enslaving us on Twitter, but that's a more apocalyptic threat. Um, stuff in the... Uh, Stuff on the internet this morning about a, a monstrously large, potentially hazardous asteroid that's going to zip close to the Earth's orbit, appropriate enough for Halloween. Then uh, there's the COVID front, which we conveniently, or some of us seem to have conveniently forgotten about. But now there's threats of a new pandemic, the next one. Are we prepared for it? Whilst COVID may be ending, but other pandemics like tuberculosis seem particularly concerning still. They haven't gone away. Lots of conversations we've had about these various threats in the past. Michael Bess, a historian, for example, was on the show earlier in October talking about his new book, Planet in Peril, Humanity's Four Greatest Challenges. But the father, so to speak, of these kinds of books is my guest today, an old friend, Martin Rees, one of the world's leading uh, scientists, perhaps the world's most famous astronomer, the author of a number of books about the threats to humanity. Perhaps many of you will be familiar with, most familiar with his book, On the Future, Prospects for Humanity. Um, it's just come out uh, earlier this year in a new uh, edition with uh, a COVID uh, an extra COVID chapter, and he's got a new book coming out this month, I think, in the in the UK and next month in the US, uh, If Science is to Save Us. Um, and he also has a new book out, uh, The End of Astronauts, Why Robots are the Future of Exploration. And I'm thrilled and honored that Martin Moore is joining us from uh, his home in, in Cambridge, the United Kingdom. Uh, Martin, uh, I... Um, you're a very cheerful man, and you write about very cheerless subjects. How do you combine those two things? Um, well, I mean, compared to the people you've just quoted, I, I'm not a doomster at all, because I think we're going to survive the century, though we'll have a bumpy ride through it. Um, but I do uh, keep cheerful, because there are genuine reasons for optimism if we can handle technology well. Your new book is about science saving us and i guess another way of, of phrasing that is is scientists need to save us you're a scientist um how do you feel about the moral responsibility of scientists like yourself to save us are scientists 
doing a good job? Well, let me answer it in two parts. I think in the COVID pandemic, science acquitted itself well. Uh, the scientists uh, managed to... Um, sorry. Go on. No, we can hear you, Martin. Yeah, okay, yes, it's not going wrong. Um, uh, the, the scientists managed to uh, uh, explain to the public the uncertainties and what was going on, and they got more coverage, of course, than they normally do. Um, and, of course, uh, they managed to develop vaccines uh, with amazing speed, given that we don't have a vaccine for HIV after 40 years. So I think they acquitted themselves well. But I think the general point I want to make is that scientists do have an obligation to ensure that... Uh, anything they discover um, has benign applications that are followed up and harmful applications which are not followed up. And they should warn uh, the public and politicians about the downsides of anything uh, they discover. But the other point I make very strongly in the book is that uh, scientists have an expertise within science, but on general issues like the um, uh, um, economic or ethical implications of their work, they are just concerned citizens. Their views are worth no more than that of other people. And that's why, therefore, scientists have to engage with the public and with politicians in order to ensure that a wide public cares about these issues and brings them up to the political agenda. Martin, we did a show yesterday with the biographer of Ted Kennedy, and his new book is called Ted Kennedy, A Life. Um, if someone was to write your biography, or perhaps you might write your own autobiography, it might be titled Martin Rees, A Scientist's Life or A Life of Science. Yeah. Uh, would that be the right kind of subtitle, given the remarkable nature of your life? Um, I think it would, although um, in my uh, last two decades, um, I have uh, spread a bit more widely. Uh, when I got to the age of 60, um, I realised that when scientists grow old, um, the best they can do is stay on a plateau in doing science. This is incidentally because if you want to do science, it's a social activity and older people are less good at uh, absorbing new ideas um, and new techniques. So the best they can do is stay on a plateau. Um, and so I thought I would uh, try and broaden out a bit. And uh, I did this and uh, became head of the biggest Cambridge College, a member of the House of Lords and president of the Royal Society, which is our Academy of Sciences. And that, of course, got me into the wider policy arena. And I'm quite glad to have uh, spent the subsequent time uh, not only following uh, the wonderful developments in astronomy, which is my subject, but also, I hope, in uh, uh, spreading knowledge of science and its benefits and risks more widely. Yeah, you are... Uh, a man who has, I wouldn't say escaped science, but certainly used your scientific platform or your platform as a scientist to broaden your appeal. You have many, many followers online. Uh, your interview with Lex Friedman, for example, on YouTube has had a couple of million views. Um, not everyone, though, not all of our audience will be familiar with your life, Martin. Very, very briefly, how would you summarize it? I mean, yes. Um, you're not from you. You weren't from a privileged background, and yet you've broken into every privileged place, uh, particularly in 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 the United Kingdom. You're the you you were the the Queen's astronomer. Are you now the King's astronomer? Um, uh, yes, I am. It's a fairly 
purely honorary title with no duties, the Astronomer Royal, um, and uh, I had this, this title um, just through being a senior astronomer. The Astronomer Royal used to be the person who ran the Greenwich Observatory, but that became a museum 50 years ago uh, when it became possible to have telescopes under clearer skies in Hawaii and Chile and places like that. But they kept the title as an honorary one. Uh, and so it doesn't have much substance to it. Um, but uh, that's one title I have. And I'm a member of the UK's House of Lords, which is a, a privilege or no less of an honour. Um, but going back to my early life, um, my parents were school teachers and I grew up in the uh, country in the west of England. Um, but I was very lucky to go to a good school and to come to Cambridge as a student. Um, and um, uh, my main piece of luck was uh, when I graduated to be able to get into a research group. This was in the mid-1960s, um, which was doing cosmology and astronomy at a time when there were exciting new developments, the first evidence for black holes, the first evidence for the Big Bang, etc. And uh, that got me started. And so my focus throughout most of my academic career has been on uh, space and astronomy. And uh, uh, luckily, the subject has remained very lively. And if there are any uh, young people uh, uh, listening to us now, I would say that the last five years have been just as exciting in terms of innovations, gravitational waves, evidence for planets around stars and all that, as the five years when I was starting a long time ago. So it's, it's a really vibrant field. One of the things that strikes me about you, Martin, um, is that many men of your age, seniority, achievement, would be happy to rest on their laurels, but you don't seem to want to do that. Um, every time I come across you, you're telling me about new new books, new projects, new initiatives, new media appearances. What drives you? Do you, you ha seem to have a remarkable energy. It's almost as if someone wound you up uh, and yeah. you, uh, you haven't stopped moving yet. Well, I mean, I, 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 I'm lucky that... Uh, I can still keep going. And indeed, uh, in the last 10 years, um, I've worked as hard as ever, but in a literally irresponsible way. I'm no longer in charge of anything substantial. And so I can pace myself. But I've been very lucky to be able to uh, write books and give, uh, give talks and be involved in uh, UK politics, etc. And so um, I, I've uh, been able to have these opportunities and uh, and seize them whenever I can. So I've been very lucky. How would you like to be remembered? What, 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 what would you like your major legacy to be? Um, well, I think I would claim to have uh, played quite a big part in the debate on various issues in cosmology and astronomy, helping to understand the um, uh, evolution of our universe, and some of the exotic things in it, um, and to have uh, interacted with and perhaps helped to encourage younger generations of people. But also, I hope to have had a constructive uh, effect in the organizations I've been involved in. Let's focus on, on the new book, If Science is to Davis. You're also quite a political man. You're a progressive. You're on the left, uh, unashamedly on the left. You've been quite critical, for example, of Boris Johnson. Um, are you surprised with the way in which science has been increasingly politicized, particularly uh, in the context of COVID? 
Um, well, I think that was worse in your country than in mine. Uh, I think in, in the UK, um, uh, we had some very good scientists who had great exposure on the TV. Um, and I, I think uh, um, the, the scientists and the politicians both did a pretty good job. So uh, I mean, there were the anti-vaxxers, of course, um, uh, just as there are the climate deniers, etc. But I think um, public opinion was really um, uh, determined by the majority who took seriously the threat and respected the views of the scientists who gradually clarified the story um, as, the, the, as the pandemic developed. What would you say then to Americans who have suggested that COVID vaccines are some sort of totalitarian invention of a, a scientific elite? Um, well, uh, I, I despair that people think of this. And indeed, I note that it's only in the last year or two that more than 50% of Americans believe in Darwinian evolution. So I feel that in the US, um, not only do you have many of the world's greatest scientists, but you have uh, um, a public which is less mindful of science uh, than in uh, most other countries, uh, which is rather sad, I think, because uh, one point which I make in my book is that uh, uh, although obviously science is a specialized profession and we don't expect people to be experts, um, more and more of the decisions which in a democracy uh, citizens have to be involved in to be informed voters have a scientific element, uh, be it in energy, um, environment or health. And uh, uh, so people who don't understand the basis of those and uh, uh, are bamboozled by statistics uh, can't really be informed debaters and the debate then doesn't get above uh, uh, just slogans. And I think that's uh, a problem in all countries, but I think especially in the US. You describe the US as my country or your country. It's not really my country. I happen to be living in it, but I don't have a passport. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm innocent here, Martin, um, or relatively innocent. Uh, you and I have talked about your career in the context of the UK and the United States. Billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars have been poured into research in America. And some of them, the American universities are the leading research institutes for science. You chose to stay in the UK. You've always been somewhat ambivalent about the United States. Is it mostly because of political reasons? Um, yes, I mean, uh, firstly, um, I've been very lucky. Uh, to have uh, good opportunities in Britain and to work in uh, fields uh, where uh, the UK is uh, fully a match to the United States. Uh, so I've been lucky. Um, but um, I have benefited hugely from uh, visiting large numbers of academic centres in the US. Um, I spent uh, periods when I was a postdoctoral research fellow uh, in um, Princeton, Harvard and Caltech and places like that. I used to go and still go several times a year to the US to scientific meetings, and that's hugely stimulating. Um, but the impression I have is that um, whereas academics in Britain are typical of sort of uh, middle-class educated Brits, I think there's a big gap between those who one meets in academia in the US um, and your average middle-class American. Um, and therefore, I don't feel I would be happy uh, if I settled in America, because there are very big ideological differences in uh, um, you know, gun laws and penal codes and things like that, uh, where all of us in Europe 
uh, feel uh, uh, unhappy about the party lines in America. And so that's why um, I've never been incentivized to uh, uh, go in and to take a job in America. Let's come back to the planet in peril question. Uh, Michael Bess mentions four particular areas, uh, artificial intelligence, nuclears, and nu the nuclear threat, uh, climate and pandemic. Yes. You mentioned at the beginning that you are increasingly optimistic about the future, but what concerns you most? If, 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 if our planet, if our species is to last out the 21st century, what's the biggest danger, my, uh, Martin? Yeah, yes. Well, uh, let me put it in two categories. Um, there are the uh, problems that we are causing collectively to our ever heavier footprint on the planet, who are more of us, more demanding of energy and resources. And this is uh, the effect we're having on the climate and on biodiversity, etc. And this is uh, um, a sort of slow motion version of uh, COVID-19. And the point here is that we're rather like the... Uh, classic um, uh, uh, frog in the um, uh, uh, warming tank of water that doesn't realize what's happening until it's too late to save itself. So the problem there is that there are these threatening changes which could be irreversible. And unless we are aware of them and react to them soon enough, then they will be disastrous in the end of the century. So that's one thing. Uh, but the other category of threats are those which are caused by the misuse of ever more powerful technology. Um, uh, AI, bio, and cyber. And uh, if you ask me to highlight what scares me most, um, it's the misuse of biotechnology, because uh, um, biotech is going to be um, the frontier subject in the uh, next 50 years, uh, just like IT has been in the last uh, 50 years. Um, and um, uh, obviously, um, this could be used in benign ways to produce vaccines against new pandemics, etc. But it can also be used by bad actors to uh, um, uh, engineer uh, new viruses in addition to natural ones. And so uh, that's a danger that's very hard to contend with because um, you can't build a, an H-bomb uh, in without using special purpose facilities that can easily be monitored. Uh, one can... Uh, uh, now engineer a virus using facilities which are widely available in labs, in universities and industry. Um, what about the creation of, of post-humans? You, you, you've warned that Elon Musk might spawn the first yes. post-humans. Is this something we should celebrate or fear? No. Well, first, uh, let me just emphasize a bit more why I'm uh, unhappy about... Um, bio threats. Um, I think we need regulation uh, that people shouldn't do these sorts of dangerous experiments, but enforcing those regulations globally is going to be as hard as enforcing the drug laws or the tax laws, which we can't do. So I think we have a tension that's going to strengthen between three things we would like to preserve, uh, privacy, security, and freedom. And I think privileges will have to go. We're going to have to accept surveillance, Chinese style, if we are to minimize the risk of a global catastrophe uh, due to misuse of biotech. Wow. So that's a that's quite a radical conclusion. I would love to actually get you on the show with uh, Stuart Brand. Stuart Brand is... Oh, I know him well. Yes, great man. Yeah, I can imagine. And you're very different kinds of characters, very different 
yeah. mentalities. He's more enthusiastic about um, the creation of other species or the reinvention of species. How would you respond to Brand's optimism, for example, about somehow reinventing the dinosaurs? Um, well, I mean, I, I think um, uh, if that could be done, uh, there's, there's no objection to it. But uh, um, turning back to human enhancement, I think obviously there are sort of uh, ethical issues. Um, one thing that can be done, of course, now is to do some gene editing uh, to remove the uh, single genes that cause certain kinds of diseases, like Huntington's disease. And I think everyone thinks that that's a good idea. Um, but uh, uh, to remove a uh, handicap is one thing. Uh, trying to enhance individuals genetically is another. Fortunately, it's much harder because the uh, things we want to uh, uh, develop are all things which are um, not single genes, but hundreds or thousands of genes. And in order to uh, uh, achieve human enhancement, you've got to um, uh, understand which combination of literally thousands of genes is responsible for the way you look or your intelligence, etc., and also be able to synthesize a genome with those properties and hope that there are no unexpected downsides which you've introduced. So I think it's a long way away. Um, but of course, uh, one thing which is happening is um, attempts to extend the lifespan. In fact, uh, just in the last year, mm. um, in three labs called Altos Labs, two in California and one here in Cambridge, uh, funded by billionaires uh, with the uh, aim of uh, understanding aging, which is a good thing, but also extending the lifespan. And uh, these billionaires, of course, when they were young, they wanted to be rich. And now they're rich, they want to be young again. And that's not quite so easy to achieve. Uh, and in fact, one rather hopes they'll fail. Because if there was a sort of wealthy class of people who had a far longer lifespan uh, than uh, anyone else, that would be a very fundamental kind of inequality. Um, and of course, um, uh, if this technique became widespread, then of course, we'd have to ask, would it be better if everyone lived much longer or not? And again, that's a, a brilliant question. It's a fascinating question. And talking of the wealthy, we had D Douglas Rashkoff on the show. He has a new book out about how tech billionaires are trying to escape the Earth, go to Mars or Venus mm. or wherever. Elon Musk, obviously, Jeff Bezos. What are your thoughts on what some people see as, 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 as tech billionaires flight literally and metaphorically from the world. What, what would a scientist say? What's the responsibility of a scientist to address this issue? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, well, this links to the book I wrote with Don Goldsmith called The End of Astronauts um, on human spaceflight. Um, and uh, um, uh, our theme in this book is that um, the case for sending humans into space is getting weaker as robots get more advanced. All the practical things like exploration and fabricating structures in space can be done by robots. And uh, they, of course, can be launched much more cheaply. They don't need food on the journey, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, with advancing AI, they can do more and more of the things that human explorers would do. So the practical case for sending humans is getting weaker all the time. And it's very, very expensive, especially if it's done by NASA which is very risk averse. Um, so to make it safe for humans and send to Mars is very expensive. So our theme in this book is that um, uh, 
we aren't in favor of a NASA funded human spaceflight program. But on the other hand, I would certainly cheer on um, the billionaires if they fund a cut price, high risk program to launch into space and maybe even send to Mars. Um, uh, thrill-seeking adventurers prepared to accept high risk and even one-way trip. Uh, I think we, we could admire them and encourage them and cheer them on. And Musk himself has said that he hopes to die on Mars, but not on impact. He's, I think, 51 years old now. So 40 years from now, he might make this and good luck to him. And I think we would uh, encourage um, the billionaires and sponsors to uh, um, promote human spaceflight because um, just as the Apollo astronauts 50 years ago were heroes take, accepting high risks, that would be the case also of um, uh, these people launched by the uh, private ventures of uh, uh, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. Uh, and so we should cheer them on. But I don't think the American taxpayer should pay to send humans into space um, because if it's done by the American taxpayers, then um, they will try and keep down the risk. To illustrate that, the shuttle failed twice in 135 launches. That's a less than 2% failure rate. But each of those failure rates, which killed the crew of seven, was a national trauma. Uh, but a 2% failure rate, a 2% risk, is certainly acceptable to many uh, adventurers. And so uh, that's why human spaceflight could be done much more cheaply by the private sector, uh, which doesn't present it as space tourism, but presents it as a dangerous space adventure. You've spent your life, Martin, looking at the universe quite literally and figuratively. What do you think we're going to find out there as we send these vehicles, either manned by humans yeah. or... Uh, or robots into space. We did a show with Avi Loeb. I'm sure you're familiar with his work from Harvard University. He has a very controversial book, Extraterrestrial. What are your thoughts on whether there really are, quote unquote, extraterrestrials out there, life in the universe? Do you think there is? And should we be careful about bumping into some life form that will easily destroy us as humans? Yes. Well, uh, let me say that, of course, uh, uh, robots will clearly go to Mars and uh, they could just as easily go and explore um, the outer solar system and look for evidence of simple life um, under the ice of Europa, a moon of Jupiter, or Enceladus, a moon of Saturn. Um, and it'd be very, very important uh, to see if there's life there, um, because if life has originated twice within our solar system, independently, then that would straight away tell us that life exists in a billion places in our galaxy. Because it can't be a rare fluke. At so what moment, do you think, Martin? I mean, what's your sense? What's your hunch? Well, I think it's not, it's not worthwhile to have a hunch because we just no idea. Um, and uh, uh, the exciting thing is that we, we, we may know the answer within 10 or 20 years. Uh, by well, I can't wait 10 or 20 years, Martin. Well, uh, I we, might not be around. What's your well, sense? I, I certainly will. But, but, but I think uh, um, it's, a, it's a biological problem. It's, we don't understand how life began on the Earth. We understand how, from simple beginnings, life underwent Darwinian evolution for 4 billion years. But the transition uh, between non-living and living uh, from 
complex chemistry to the first metabolizing, reproducing thing we call alive. That's still not understood. And so we don't know whether that's a rare fluke or whether it would have happened um, on any other environment like the young Earth. And of course, what we have learned, and this is one of the most exciting things in astronomy, is that most stars are orbited by retinues of planets, just as the sun is orbited by the Earth and the other familiar planets. So there are uh, many, many millions of Earth-like planets in the galaxy, which would have been like the young Earth and where life could have evolved. And so we don't know that. And of course, even if simple life's widespread, we don't know how likely it is to uh, evolve into something that we would call intelligent or which would display technological prowess. We just don't know. Uh, but I think it's such a fascinating issue that it's worth um, pursuing. And I should say that I chair the advisory board for Yuri Milner's Breakthrough Listen project, which is um, <clears throat> uh, uh, buying time on big radio telescopes and building special purpose instruments uh, to look for evidence of transmissions that look artificial. And I think we should uh, pursue this because it's uh, not expensive compared to the rest of science and assumes public fascination. We'd all like to find the answer to this question in our lifetime. So you're saying that in 10 or 20 years, we should have a better idea. How much do we really know, Martin? I mean, there's this idea of science making all these profound breakthroughs. Recently, we had a very interesting neuroscientist on the show, Patrick House. He has a new book out, 19 Ways of Looking at Consciousness. Um, very interesting conversation. And he basically said, we still have no idea of how consciousness works. And the idea of perhaps me, for example, becoming Martin Rees or Martin Rees becoming Andrew Keane is still inconceivable. Are we still in the early stages, Martin, of science, do you think? Well, I, th I think we are. I mean, uh, as I said, the origin of life is a mystery. And of course, consciousness is an even deeper mystery. And um, I, I think uh, the, the qu there will be some progress, but I think we've got to be open-minded about something else. It is the possibility that some key features of the universe and of nature may be just too complicated for human beings to understand. There's no particular reason why the human brain should be matched to understand all the complexities around it. Um, it's amazing we've got so far. Uh, our brains haven't changed much since our ancestors rode Roman African savannas, but they can understand um, the micro world of the, uh, the quantum and also something about the cosmos. But the complexities of the biological world and of consciousness um, are certainly beyond us today, um, but uh, they are um, perhaps even beyond human beings. But uh, of course, that, that would have to await post-humans. And of course, one point which we do know as astronomers is that um, the time lying ahead is longer than the time that's elapsed up till now. The Earth's been around for more than four billion years, but it's six billion years more before it dies, and the universe has a far longer perhaps even in the future ahead of it. So we are maybe not even the halfway stage in the emergence of complexity. Um, but that's a, a long answer saying that um, uh, science has a long way to go. Uh, but if I look at what uh, has happened in the last 10 or 20 years and what we can expect in the next 20 years, as I say, we can expect um, to know more about the probability of life emerging from, first of all, probes of the outer planets and their moons. And secondly, uh, from... Uh, um, being able to at least take crude spectra of some Earth-like planets orbiting nearby stars. The James Webb Telescope may be able to do this, um, and a slightly better job will be done by the uh, European Ground-Based Telescope, which is 
an imaginative called the Extremely Large Telescope, the ELT, which has a 39-meter diameter mirror and therefore can collect lots of light and actually collect a lot of light even from the faint uh, uh, planets orbiting other stars and to see if there's evidence for vegetation or chlorophyll um, in uh, the atmospheres of those planets will be important. So uh, there is going to be some evidence which is relevant to the likelihood of life um, and, of course, which may reveal positive evidence for it. What about the issue of reality itself? We did a show with a very distinguished German physicist, Sabine Hossenfelder. I'm sure you're familiar with her work. She has a new book out, Existential Physics. We talked about the idea of us living in a simulated reality in a kind of metaverse. She was rather dismissive of that. What's yes. your sense of those kind of perhaps fictions? Is it conceivable in scientific terms, Martin, that we're living in a big metaverse, that everything around us is simulated, that the universe itself is a giant internet? Yes. Um, uh, well, I mean, uh, uh, it's hard to say something is completely inconceivable because we can conceive it. But uh, um, I, uh, although I uh, feel we should be open-minded about what's called the multiverse, that's the idea that uh, our Big Bang was not the only one. Uh, that's an open question. Um, th 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 this question of the, uh, uh, that she's talking about, which is the idea that some um, uh, vastly superhuman intelligences um, develop a... Uh, uh, a simulation and we're part of it. Um, this is something that I, uh, I, I I just feel is pretty crazy. Yeah, she, she to be fair to Sabine, she, she dismisses yeah. it too. Yeah. What about, you know, you've written this book, Martin, about the role of scientists. What about the role of artists in making sense of the world? The great science writer, historian, novelist, Alan Lightman at MIT was on the show. It's one of my favorite yeah. interviews of all time. He has a book out probable impossibility yes. and he talked to me about what he called the artfulness of the cosmos does one perhaps rather than a scientist does one need to be a poet or a science fiction writer to really make sense of what we don't know of the mystery of the cosmos well i mean uh, you mentioned science fiction and uh, although i'm not a huge reader of science fiction i would tell my students it's better to read first-rate science fiction than second-rate science it's more stimulating and no more likely to be wrong. Um, and indeed, um, I think you said in your email you were going to ask me about my favourite book. And uh, one yeah. of my favourite books was going to be one of the classics of science fiction by a chap called um, Olav Stapleton, who was a lecturer in philosophy in Britain in the 1930s. Not very well known. He wrote um, two classic books in science fiction. One was called Last and First Men, which was a, a sort of... a uh, scenario for the next two billion years when uh, species like humans arose and then died and were replaced by new ones, etc. But the other one, even more remarkable, is one called Starmaker. And Starmaker is a maker of universes. And he had the idea of multiple big bangs, universes of different dimensions, etc. Um, and uh, so books like that, um, and of course there are many, many others, um, are stimulating. Um, and uh, I think scientists will benefit from from reading them and uh, the public benefits from uh, having their imagination nourished by those books. What about coming back to your book, Martin, uh, If Science is to Save Us? Do you think we over-venerate scientists in some ways? I know you're 
quite critical of the Nobel Prizes. It's one of the few prizes actually you haven't won. Um, what's wrong with these kind of prizes in which we supposedly reward the great geniuses of science? Um, well, first of all, I mean, I, I think um, uh, scientists are, as a community, quite respected. I mean, if you ask for opinion polls about uh, um, what groups are respected, I mean, academic scientists, in terms of trustworthiness, rate fairly high, uh, whereas politicians and journalists and uh, uh, state agents of people are really, really low, you know. So I think um, the scientific community uh, is um, something which I think is respected. And I think COVID has perhaps uh, raised the respect uh, because the scientists then did deliver something uh, which saved millions of lives um, in a short time scale. Uh, so I think the scientific community is um, uh, respected. I mean, the, the reason uh, I think prizes um, uh, are misleading is that uh, most of science is a collective activity. Um, mm. Is it a single genius? Uh, it's a single lucky person who makes a discovery, or it's uh, um, someone building on the work of lots of others, or it's actually a large team. Um, and uh, so the, the idea of singling out um, a category of people, um, as is done by Nobel Prizes, etc., is rather misleading. And especially misleading if the people who win Nobel Prizes are thought to be the great intellectual geniuses. Some of them are just lucky. Yeah. So, well, so luck plays a role in the world, though. I mean, as you suggest, maybe we as a species have been lucky. Um, yeah. you, you talked about the collective nature of science. Yes. Uh, you've written about the danger of science behind closed doors. Yes. Are you also, can, should, can and should science be radically democratized? Is there ways of opening it up, of opening the doors so that everyone not only has access, but perhaps can contribute? Um, well, of course, um, uh, um, there's nothing closed about it. I mean, uh, the publications are accessible, accessible in principle to everyone, but of course, uh, many can't be understood um, without uh, uh, some sort of technical training. Um, this doesn't mean that they are intrinsically too difficult, but it's it just like a, um, if you've never seen a sheet of, 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 uh, of, of music before, um, it's gobbledygook. And if you, in the foreign language, it's gobbledygook too. But that doesn't mean that uh, learning to read music or learning a foreign language is, is too hard for human beings. It just means that it takes a bit of effort. And uh, if people don't make that effort, then obviously they uh, won't understand the details of science. But the point I would make and do make in the book is that um, uh, what's important is people should have a feel for science, under, understand the um, general um, principles and the limitations, uh, because they can't be uh, well-informed citizens and voters unless they understand um, uh, environmental constraints and health and things like that. Um, so, so I, I think um, we, we need to um, ensure everyone has a basic scientific education um, and also um, we'll make science open to make sure that uh, um, there are many people who'd like to be scientists who have disadvantaged childhoods and they um, don't get on a ladder soon enough. So I think we've got to ensure that uh, education um, gets through to the disadvantaged who now uh, may not be able to uh, get a scientific training. 
Uh, but of course, I think the internet and everything like that and lifelong learning is going to change things. And another point I make in my book is that um, one um, benign development may be a revival of the uh, truly independent scientist, um, uh, rather like um, um, in the 19th century, Darwin and Rayleigh, who were two of the greatest scientists, but they were able to work independently because they, they, they were rich. And um, uh, it would be perhaps good for science and promote greater originality if there were more um, uh, scientists who were independently financed by their own earnings. And I think we can expect that um, as there are um, uh, more people of a younger generation who will make enough money via startups, etc., to uh, um, uh, stop being in business when they're 40, uh, many of them uh, may decide to do science on the professional level. Um, a few people like that. I mean, I was privileged to know James Lovelock, um, the inventor uh, of the Gaia concept, who just died at age 103. He was one of the few independent scientists of his generation. But I think to be more like that, and that would be very healthy indeed, to have more independent ideas, um, because there is a risk, obviously, if uh, uh, all scientists have to be supported in institutions like universities. Do you think that it's possible to to make the transition from successful entrepreneur to successful scientist. You and I, I think first met through Jan Tallinn and his involvement with the Cambridge Center for Existential Research. Yes. Um, can men like Tallinn, can you make a fortune in tech and then become a credible scientist? Or do some of these very wealthy tech entrepreneurs, um, do you think they're, they're a little bloated in terms of their own significance and perhaps should just fund these things rather than become scientists themselves. I'm not suggesting that Tallinn is particularly to blame, although he has made a number of remarks and written some stuff about the dangers of AI. Yes. Well, I mean, uh, as I said earlier, um, uh, to, to uh, contribute at the front of the science, um, you've got to do a lot of work in preparation, because you've got to, uh, you, you can't just uh, um, leap over all the work that's been done by your predecessors. Uh, and so anyone who wants to contribute to science uh, needs to probably um, go back to university or at least take courses uh, occupying two or three years before they're in a place to do this. But uh, so, uh, Elon Musk should probably, he's got a lot of money, but probably less time, maybe he should go back to university. Finally, Martin, your new book is If Science is to Save Us. Do you think science is our greatest invention? Do you even think of science as a human invention or is it just the reality of the universe that we've grasped? Um, well, of course, it is a, um, uh, a rational interpretation of the external reality that we're embedded in and are part of. Um, and uh, I would say it's probably the uh, greatest collective achievement of uh, humanity because uh, our entire present technology um, is based on uh, uh, understanding of how nature works, um, and that's important. Um, so I think it, it's, a, it's an important collective achievement. But of course, um, the pinnacles of individual achievements um, are probably in the creative arts because uh, one point which I make in my book is that um, if if uh, uh, you don't discover something in science, um, then someone else will sooner or later, usually sooner. Um, whereas uh, 
if, if you are um, uh, 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 Wagner or Beethoven, uh, then, then uh, your creations are unique and uh, no one else is going to do just the same. <clears throat> so there is that difference. But I think science obviously is a great cumulative activity of uh, humans over the generations.